0: Just one more time, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. All praise to you, Lord Christ, the great I am, our righteousness, our redemption, our sanctification, our wisdom. And now as we look at your word. Come and teach us. Look down from your throne and by your Spirit in this room, through the agency of your infallible word written, transform your people, save the lost, lift up the downcast. Guide the perplexed. Reconcile the alienated. Heal the sick. Encourage the disheartened. Fellowship with the lonely. Humble the proud. Unite us in the truth. And by your Spirit, I pray. God, help me now to be faithful to your Word. Give ears to hear, a tongue to speak. Through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Well, here we are at the end of chapters 1 to 7. In the book of Romans, and fifth sermon of this book. We began April 1998 and God willing, next Sunday we will begin the Great Eight. It doesn't get any better than Romans 8. And so pray hard. But it's almost as good in Romans 1 to Seven. So I've set myself the impossible task this morning of giving you a, a, a summary of the seven chapters. And my heart's desire and my aim and prayer for you is that the structure of thought and the vision of reality will become the structure of your mind. And your vision of reality. I think that's why he gave us the Bible. He ordained that we be rational, thinking, feeling creatures, and that he not just zap us and everything automatically happens in our brain, but that it come through word, reading, thinking, meditating, and that word shape the structure of how we think, how we see reality. And so what ought to be happening week in and week out in this room and in your own study and in Sunday school and in small group is the transformation and renewal of minds so that little by little they begin to conform to the mind of God who has set forth his mind in the Bible insofar as our little minds can grasp it. So that's my aim. I long, Paul said, the aim of our charge is love that comes from a pure heart and a clean conscience and sincere faith. So the aim of my charge, the aim of my preaching, the aim of Romans 1 to 7 and 8, 9, 10 and through 16 is love. That is a kind of people who have been so transformed in the way they think about God and think about life and think about sin and think about the cross and think about faith and think about this city and all of its business and commerce and media and education and thinks about it all so differently the way God thinks that we become radical aliens and exiles in America ready to lay down our lives for the glory of Christ in this Christless city and for the salvation of sinners. It's not about just stocking the head with truth. It's about so transforming the mind and the heart and the life that we become a counter-cultural, alien, exile kind of sojourning people in this brief lifespan that the world is Salted and lighted by Jesus Christ. So here we go. The main problem, the most fundamental problem in the universe, according to chapters 1 to 7, is that you and I and every human being except one who has ever lived has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and has brought upon ourselves condemnation. Those two things, sin or our condition, and the consequence of sin, condemnation, describe the main problem in the universe. The main problem in every life in this room I don't care what your finances are. I don't care what state your marriage is in. I don't care what state your children are in. Your business. The main problem of everybody in this room is that we sin and we are under the wrath of God. Therefore. The prosecuting attorney has done his work in the first three chapters. He ends at chapter 3, verse Nine following with this climactic indictment. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we, Jews, any better than anybody else? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, the rest of us, are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Or, as he says again down in chapter 3, verse 22, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, there's a definition of sin falling short of the glory of God. Sin has to do first and foremost with God, not people. Sin hurts people. Sin destroys people. Destroys marriages. Destroys homes. Destroys businesses. Destroys societies. That's not the main problem about sin. The main problem about sin is that it is a revolver in the face of God. It's a defamation of God. It's a blaspheming of God. It's a trampling of God. It's a belittling and a dishonoring of God. What is sin? The glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved, that is sin." The hurt that it does to people compared to what it is toward God is very secondary. Why is it that people can become so emotionally and morally indignant over poverty, exploitation, prejudice, injustice of man against man and feel almost no indignation or remorse that God is belittled in this city by everybody to the extent that we all deserve to die now I'll tell you why. Why? It's because even in our proper indignation over the hurt of man to man, we sin because we elevate the value of man above the value of God. Because we're more bent out of shape at what man does to man than what man does to God. Even our proper indignation is sinful. Even our right anger about injustices are sinful. Because God doesn't compare... We're so much more angry that I got ripped off at the store. So much more angry that this law is unjust. So much more angry that the poor suffer without the proper medical care than we are about the fact that the poor and the rich despise God. Belittle God. Ignore God. Poor and rich. Rich. When's that going to get somebody's dander up? Not until God becomes God. That's what this book is about. Paul is on a crusade to restore the rightful place of God in the souls of every human being possible. That's our condition. We are sinners who belittle God day in and day out. Now here's the consequence. Romans one eighteen, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And if you wonder, what is it that's getting God's wrath up here? What is it that's really stirring up the anger of Almighty God? You just keep reading, and it says... For what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them. For His divine nature, namely His eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him, or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking. And their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. That's what makes God angry. You haven't even heard a word about how that affects man in that text. It does destroy you and your family, but that's not what makes God angry first. God created you to know Him, love Him, honor Him, enjoy Him, treasure Him, magnify Him, adore Him, admire Him, live for Him. And nobody does it. Zero. And the consequence of it is wrath. Or to use the words of chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself On the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Or verse 8. Those who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness will receive wrath and fury. Now, when you hear words like this. Wrath and fury. Or anger and indignation. Coming from an omnipotent, infinite being. You should be still. And let that sink in. No greater negative force in the universe is conceivable than the wrath of an omnipotent God. I challenge your mind. No greater negative force is conceivable than the anger of an omnipotent God. That's on you. That's against you. That's how bad sin is. It's how bad it is to dishonor God. We need to let the apostle of love Who laid his head on Jesus' breasts and wrote all of our favorite texts. John, talk to us about this. Here are his words from Revelation 14.10. They will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And they will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. He's groping to help us feel it. Because if we don't get it clear here and somewhat feel it here, you know what will happen? The love of God will be a mere sentimentalism. Or the love of God will be a kind of additional support to my self-help moral improvement schemes and my recovery efforts. Thank you, God, for being my assistant in making myself a little better. That's what the love of God will be. That's what it is for most people in America. Until we know what wrath is from God, Until we tremble at the prospect of the wrath of God resting on us and there being no escape, we won't know what the love of God is. All right. The prosecuting attorney has done his work. All right. And now we are at chapter three, verse 19. And the whole point has been every mouth is stopped. And the whole world is accountable to God. And he lays down and takes on the defense attorney. Now. Because if something doesn't happen here. If there's not a message here. We're goners. We're ashes. Worse than ashes. Conscious ashes forever in hell. He adds to that verse there at the big turning point in 319 and 20, something to this effect. Don't even begin to think that by works of the law you can get right with God. No flesh will be justified in His sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And if I jump ahead a little bit, I would also add this. Don't even begin to think that you could make any headway in becoming a new person by works of the law. Those are the two things that have to be solved. My condemnation and my condition. One is a legal problem. And the other is a moral transformation problem. I am guilty and sentenced to everlasting torment under the righteous, holy, just wrath of God. That's where I belong. And I have a condition that has brought me to that point, which needs to be healed and changed and transformed. Now, that's what the book of Romans is for. The legal problem gets solved in justification, and the moral problem gets solved in sanctification. And that's what these first seven chapters are. So let's take those one at a time. First, justification. Oh, get this right. Please, those of you who have been here for these years, those of you who are brand new this morning, perhaps, get this order right. Before there can be any talk of changing the way we live. See, the knee, the knee-jerk reaction to anybody who hears the bad news that I just delivered, the knee-jerk reaction is, I gotta change. I gotta change. I gotta change. I gotta fix myself. So he likes me. And then at the judgment, maybe I will have done enough good works and the balance will go up and I'll get in. That's the knee-jerk, human, man-centered way of solving this thing. So let me hit it full force here. We cannot make any progress in changing the way we are, fixing our minds, fixing our families, fixing our churches, fixing our society before We escape the wrath of God. Did you hear that? You can't make any progress that honors God in changing the way you think, change the way you feel, change the way you do sex, handle your money, handle your leisure, do your family, do your work. You can't make any God-honoring progress in that until you escape the wrath of God. You've got to have Him on your side to make progress. Or better, you got to be on His side before you make any progress. So the key issue before any talk of moral transformation is legal justification. How can I suddenly, under the wrath of God, Be declared by God, the judge, who's pouring out his wrath on me. Righteous. Accepted. Loved. Acquitted. Guiltless. Free. If that could happen to me, I just might find the wherewithal to change. But if I have to wake up every morning feeling and knowing that the wrath of God, like a 10 million ton crushing weight, is on me, I'm not going to make any progress in transformation. So Paul solves the two problems in that order. And here's the way he does it. Oh, how I would love to re-preach all hundred sermons, but... I must limit myself to one text. Go with me to Romans 3.24. It's the most important text in the Bible, I think. Romans 3.24 and 25. It doesn't get any better. It's not more precious than this, even though it's not in chapter 8. These guilty, condemned sinners that we are, What what hope is there? How can this be remedied? What's God's remedy for my condemnation? I mean, can God remedy it? He's the one who's pouring out the wrath. And here are the words. I'll read verse 24. They are, these sinners like you and me, justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. As a propitiation in his blood through faith. Every phrase is infinitely precious. Justified is precious. Because it means that the solution to my problem is that I am declared righteous. Before I become righteous. As a gift is precious, isn't it? Because it means you can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't deserve it. You can only receive it. By His grace is precious. Because it means there's something else in God besides wrath. There's another power. There's another impulse. There's another massive source of energy called grace. And His grace is moving in, doing an in run on His wrath and cutting it off at Calvary. And if it weren't in God to do that... We'd be goners. And so that word, by his grace, is an infinitely precious. Through the redemption is precious because it means my sins are forgiven. Redemption is deliverance, it's liberation from the guilt and the condemnation of sin. Which is in Christ Jesus is precious because it means it's him, it's him, it's not me, it's not my performances, it's not my fulfillment of the law, it's Christ's fulfillment of the law. It's not my dying for my sins, it's his dying for my sins. In Christ is a precious phrase. Whom God displayed publicly. That's precious because this thing wasn't done in a corner. God put him forward in history. This is not mythology. I don't know what religion you love right now, but if you want Christianity, you get history. It's as real as this pulpit. Jesus Christ is not a fairy tale. Born, raised under certain Roman governors, Pontius Pilate, documented in secular history, Written by many, many witnesses. They saw him alive. They saw him dead. They saw him risen. This is history. This is not mythology. That's a precious phrase. As a propitiation. Now you may not think that's precious because you don't have a clue what it means. But it is precious because propitiation means the removal of wrath. When someone who's angry is propitiated, it means you do what you have to do to take away their anger toward you. And that's what Jesus did towards God. He stood in there and he didn't talk God out of it. Because it was just. Sin must be executed. What the son did at this point is not to say, Oh, they're not as bad as you think, Father. Come on, have a break. He said, Everything you feel towards these wretched sinners is absolutely justified. And now, being infinitely valuable like I am, I'm the only person in the universe who can do this, and I'm going to do it. I want you to take the wrath that you are going to pour on all of those who trust you and pour it on me. And God said, I'll do it. It was God's idea in the first place. And he did it. I love the word propitiation. I love the word. Propitiation. I love the phrase in his blood. It means he died in my place. I don't have to die for my own sins. There was a sacrifice sufficient. And I love the phrase through faith. Because that tells me how you and I, right now in this room, can be a beneficiary of all this glorious work on the cross. Namely, by faith alone. So, here's what justification is. Justification is the act of God by which he counts us to be righteous, even when we're sinners, by grace alone, through faith alone. On the basis of Christ's life and death alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, there is where we stand. And now, just a few closing words on sanctification. Justification is not a process. Justification is a point in time and a declaration on your first little mustard seed of saving faith. Some of you may be exercising it this very moment. I pray so. If you are, if you say, Oh Christ! I receive this gift, this righteousness, this pardon, this treasure. I receive it. In that instant, the declaration goes forth from Almighty God, not guilty. Righteous. That's never a process. And the reason it's so crucial to get that is because now the process that is going to begin called sanctification, that is, you're actually changing, is based on that declaration. And if you don't have that declaration settled, you know what your process will become? Legalism or perfectionism. And both will end in despair. Both will end in despair. If you know yourself loved, accepted, vindicated, justified, accepted by God because of Christ, not because of you, and one simple act of receiving and trusting that and resting in it seals it, now the process begins. And you've got to preach to yourself every day the gospel when you get up so that your, your guilt feelings as you get up Do not turn into demonic, legalistic strivings to get yourself right with God. There's only one hope of getting right with God. Jesus. His death and His life in our place. His righteousness for ours. His death for ours. That's justification. It is over. Now, how do you get changed? What is this thing called sanctification? He uses the word in 619. He says, Yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. Go on presenting, presenting. So, standing on this massive rock of justification and the righteousness of Jesus. Standing there, I now have a body. I have a mind. I have a heart. It's all sinful. And I don't want it to be. The mark of a justified person is that you hate sin. And you mean to get changed if it takes a lifetime, which it will. And so as you stand there loving Jesus, loving Jesus because he is your righteousness, you start presenting your body. You present your body as instruments of righteousness to God for sanctification. That is for becoming holy. Now, the verse, I'll just be very personal and experiential here. The verse that has been most precious to me in this regard has been chapter seven, verse four to me. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law. The law's not going to get you sanctified. Nope. You say, okay, now I'm justified. Now I got to take the law. Get my list right here. Get the list right. What are the expectations? And now I will start fixing myself with this list. won't work. Chapter 7, verse 4 says, Die to that. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Why? Here's the key now. Here's the key to your life. I'm going to close with this because we've been on it for weeks and weeks, and we'll be on it next week and right on through Romans. You were made to die to the law, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. There's sanctification, bearing fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. You want to, if you're a justified person, you want that so much. Oh, God, I want to be loving. Oh, God, I want to be happy in you. I want to be kind. I want to be patient. I want to be self-controlled. That's what you want. That's what your new nature is crying out for. And this text says, you will bear that fruit when you die to the law and are united to Jesus. So what's my word? What's the key to life? The key to life is a personal union, communion, fellowship, friendship with the living Christ. So unbeliever, unbeliever, come. To the risen Christ. Receive Him and all that God is for you in Him as your righteousness and your pardon and your treasure. Embrace Him, trust Him, love Him, lean on Him. Believer, what's my message to you? Exactly the same. Only you do it afresh every day. Every day, you get up in the morning, where do you go? You go to Jesus. You don't go to the law. You go to Jesus, and you love Jesus, and you embrace Jesus, and you rest in Jesus, and you thank Jesus, and you get Jesus seen and savored in your heart. And I'll tell you, as you grow in this sweet, deep, all-satisfying relationship with Jesus, you will change. Any other kind of change wouldn't honor Jesus. It will honor you. Any other kind of change that's not born out of union with the risen Christ will honor your willpower, not His glory. So I just plead with you. Just keep coming to Jesus. You know, the way you get saved and the way you be saved is the same. Just live off the gospel. You live off of Christ day after day. And you get real good breakthroughs every now and then, and then you coast for a while. And you get breakthroughs, and we just ought to be praying for each other in small groups, and we ought to be laboring in the word and loving each other and helping each other to constantly consider Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God. We need Jesus so bad. We need him under our feet as our righteousness and our pardon solid, unchanging, yesterday, today, and forever, never wavering, varying, no shadow due to change, infinitely perfect, never flawed. There's where we stand. And now, Lord Jesus, we want You to be the power of our sanctification. So we turn away from all of our vain Self-oriented strivings to you. And we do strive. Oh, we enter at the narrow door. We pummel our body, but not for the law's sake, but for Christ's sake. I count everything as rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Lord, make that real for the people, I pray. Would you stand with me for a benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace with God. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.